Are you interested in cracking the customer code? You've got customers, and we will help you work with them to deliver a great experience to grow your business. I'm Jeannie Walters. And I'm Adam Taporic. Join us as we learn from those business leaders who get it. And a few who don't. And together we'll crack the customer code. Welcome to episode 23 of Crack the Customer Code. Today we're talking about whether every company needs to try to create a community. And we have Mark Schaefer, marketing expert, author, speaker, educator, and business consultant. Mark is everywhere. He totally is. I'm so excited. And we also have a customer zero story about the company Keurig. <laughs> yes, we are going to talk about Keurig, and we're going to try to pronounce it correctly. I'm going to see what I can do about that. Now, first, I'm excited to tell you about the upcoming launch of my new book, Be Your Customer's Hero, Real-World Tips and Techniques for the Service Front Lines. The book is a one-stop training guide for anyone who works with customers. Go to BeYourCustomer'sHero.com. That is BeYourCustomer'sHero.com. And if you're trying to reach business leaders or CX professionals, sponsoring our podcast is a great way to do so. Go to crackthecustomercode.com slash sponsor for full details. So we have an interesting question today, Adam. Do all companies need community? What do you think? I think it depends. Ah, the classic consultant answer. Yes. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about building community these days, but it is... I guess we wonder, is it universally needed or does it only fit certain business models? I really do think it depends on context. So, you know, we have Mark Schaefer here today and he is, I mean, he's got one of the best communities I've ever seen as far Mm -hmm. as online communities. And then you look at somebody like Seth Godin and I don't use him as an example for everything because it's hard to replicate. He's a very unique individual, but he's able to not have a business model that doesn't include a community. So it proves just in that industry, just in blogging, you can do it both ways. Well, Seth is is pretty unique because he, is unique. he does not have comments on his blog. He's very well known for that. That's what I meant. And yet people really religiously read his blog and quote him and you know, he's universally recognized as an expert. And I do think that's it's kind of like when people say, "Well, Steve Jobs did X Y and Z. Steve Jobs was kind of a visionary." I think Seth Godin is too. And there, most of us are not Seth Godin. <laughs> oh, I absolutely agree. It's certainly a, it's a extreme example. That's why I was saying mm-hmm. I don't like to use it as an example, but it does show that you can have that model works. And then the question is, who does it work for? Mm-hmm. Well, because, and, and what kind of community, right? Because not all communities are online. I mean, the local coffee shop has to work at building community, but it might not have anything to do with digital. And I think now we throw around that term as if you have to have an interactive community through social or through your blog. And the best companies have been creating their own communities forever. And, and you know, we can get very into semantics here because what is a community? But, you know, I'll, I'll go back to I use this in, I think, many episodes are auto parts distributor in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Do they need to build a community around their business? Probably not. They need mm-hmm. to take care of their customers and their clients. And that's really what, where their focus should be. However, however. I, however, I think that <laughs> if you look at, some of the the industries that have been uh, not focused on community, the the disruptors come in and they they start building community. And I think airlines are an example of that. People get very passionate about being a customer of JetBlue or of Porter out of Toronto. Like they feel like they're part of the company and they are evangelizing because of that. And so I think there are examples where because it's not being done, there's an opportunity to do it for other companies. 
But that begs the question, are they truly building community or are they giving such great service on such a large scale, such great interaction and personal moments? And not to mention, if you mentioned the airline industry exceeding the baseline very, very much, that the community naturally forms around them. But that you still have to work. They can at that. foster it. But that's not magic. You still have to. Yeah, you still well, you have, have to, to work foster at it. it and give it the ability. But with social media, it's sort of already there. Well, yeah. So I'm not saying to like let it lay there. <laughs> I'm just saying I I don't know that they t- took a conscious effort to build community from the ground up. You know, they sort of you can foster it once it develops. Mm-hmm. But does everybody need to focus on that as a strategy? That's the big question. I I personally think there has to be some level of focus on your community. But that doesn't mean you have to have, like Mark Schaefer, his blog community is fantastic. Amazing. And I love being a part of it, by the way. So I'll just put in my fangirl thing. <laughs> Me too. Uh, so, but uh, with his community, that's not the only kind of community. And I think if you look at how can we serve our customers in a way that they feel a part of it, everyone wins. Whether you are the local coffee shop or the auto parts distributor or the blogger, whatever. I think there are ways to build community that don't necessarily mean social or interactive, but those are options that we never had before. I would agree with that. And I would agree that we probably should have defined what community was before starting this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) That's the fun. I know, exactly. More meat there otherwise, right? Well, cool. So I think we have Mark. You're right, Adam. I'd like to welcome our guest today. Mark Schaefer is a globally recognized author, speaker, educator, and business consultant who blogs at his grow blog, businessgrow.com, which is one of the top marketing blogs in the world. He teaches graduate-level marketing classes at Rutgers University and has written four best-selling books. His clients include Dell, Adidas, and the United States Air Force. So we are thrilled to have you here. Hi, Mark. Hello there. (laughs) Welcome, Mark. (laughs) I am delighted to be with you. Well, we, Adam and I, of course, uh, are part of your blog community. We love what you write. And your most recent book, The Content Code, uh, talks a little bit more about the idea of content shock. Mm. And it seems like it is at the heart of the problem statement for the content code. So can you tell us, first of all, a bit about content shock? Yes. Uh, I really started thinking about this idea back in 2013 and started talking about it that summer. And I, I began to think about this idea that the power and the economic value really doesn't lie in the content, just publishing content, for example, mm-hmm. it doesn't provide any tangible economic value if it just sits there. And and just creating an audience doesn't really create any economic value unless they connect with the content. So this idea began to form in my mind that the real power, the real influence and economic value comes through content that moves. And as you consider the incredible information density that we face today. I think it's undeniable. Every fact points to this. Not only that it's difficult to market today because of all the noise out there, it's going to get much, much worse. And by mm. tw- by 2020, just five years away, the amount of information on the web is expected to increase by 500%. So we're going to have like five internets. Oh. And, uh, you know, awesome. it, it, it's just like, it's just like, whoa, uh, it's going to get a little <laughs> bit harder to be in marketing. <laughs> and uh. so for the last 
a year and a half to two years, I've been obsessed with this, mm-hmm. literally obsessed with what do we do? And the, the idea, and, and I think really the, the key point is we need to focus on ignition. Social transmission provides the economic, the real economic value. And that suggests an entirely new mindset about what makes our content move, who makes our content move and why. And it, it, it suggests that we need to have core competencies uh, for our businesses and think about marketing in a new way. No, it's interesting. You're talking about how content moves and, you know, I was, I've been part of your blog community, and when I first started blogging, you were one of the people I found first since 2011, and it's been amazing to see this development. And, you know, one of the things that used to be taught about was the low barriers to entry for creating content, mm-hmm. but now you're talking about how there are high barriers to entry for small players to compete because of the changing content landscape. So tell us about how things like the Facebook algorithm and all that have changed that. Well, I think that you're absolutely right, uh, Adam. And, you know, I started blogging back in 2008, and it was a very different landscape. Um, Blogging was still a bit of a novelty, and it was relatively easy to at least build a little bit of an audience and start to get some traction. Um, uh, Tom Webster and I were talking just this morning about the same thing is beginning to happen now on podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, podcasts are getting very, very hot. And so the information density in the blogosphere is high. On podcasting, it's getting high. And we see this happening right before our eyes on Facebook. A few years ago, if you did a really, really good job with your content and engage with your audience, you could expect, you know, 25, 26% of your followers to actually see the content. Mm-hmm. Today, the organic reach on Facebook is, on average, about 5%. And the reason for that is there's too much stuff. <laughs> uh, Facebook says that, on average, an average user on Facebook can see 1,500 stories a day. That's just too much. Mm-hmm. And so they ratchet it down, ratchet it down, and guess who gets cut? The businesses. Right. So we've got to find new ways to to work around this and still connect with our customers. Right. Well, and I think I think back to that same time, Mark, because 2008 is really when I was invested in using Twitter, and it was so fun because you could mm. connect with people, yeah. and you could really, uh, you know, I think that's how you and I might have connected way back when. I think you're right. And so now I find Twitter is just overwhelming, and it's so much harder to make those connections. So. I think it's really accurate what you're saying. So what do you think about the role of curation in the context of content and content shock? Well, I think that there's, there's still always going to be a, uh, a real premium on original helpful content. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's a very valid role for, uh, for curation because, I mean, everybody's facing this information density problem. Everybody's struggling to keep up with what's out there. Um, there's starting to be a, uh, an issue in, in retailing, uh, where people are paralyzed, uh, about making a decision because mm-hmm. there's so much information out there. People feel almost guilty that they don't research everything. So, they can make a perfect decision. And when they go into Best Buy to buy a new you know, camera or a new smartphone or something, and they start going down 
the rabbit hole of all this research, they become paralyzed mm-hmm. because there's there's so much. So I think there is a role both for creating helpful original content and for curation. You know, it's interesting coming from our disciplines with customer service and customer experience. You, they've found that the more choices that ha- you have, the less happy you are with your eventual choice. And I think somebody even wrote something called the paradox of choice. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So now, you know, what you're talking about is the same principle. But I remember uh, you mentioned content ignition earlier. So tell us about that and why it's important. Well, this is a very, very key point. And content ignition or content sharing is different than a like. It's different than a plus one. Uh, When someone actually shares your content, they're virtually raising their hand and saying, I align with this. I believe in this. Read this. It's important to me. It should be important to you. When you like something, you're not really invested. You're just kind of lightly bonding with it. And so <laughs> this this idea of advocacy, it's advocating your content. And uh, there's a, a statistic I have in the book that shows that 70% of consumers say their purchasing decision is influenced by what others are sharing. It makes perfect sense. And I believe this is going to become more important as the millennials become a more and more uh, important factor in uh, as consumers. This is the least trusting generation ever. <laughs> they don't trust brands. They don't trust brand messages and advertising, but they do trust each other mm-hmm. and they do trust what is being shared. So again, it points to this focus that the, that the, the dynamic that is really moving the needle is not the content or even the audience. It's the transmission between trusted friends. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to enable. It's, so, like the, it's like the old 60s slogan, never trust anyone over 23 now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Never trust anybody over my age. All <laughs> <laughs> right. So one of the things that brought to mind for me was how some brands are actually putting a lot of trust in those millennials who have those followers on Instagram, who have the Snapchat, you know, communities that they're building. Mm-hmm. And what do you think of the brands kind of relinquishing that control to con- of content to those folks who are more trusted by their peer groups? I've heard of Adidas actually is one of the brands I heard was doing this as well as Disney um, and some others. And so they're saying, okay, Mr. Millennial with thousands of followers on Instagram, people clearly like your stuff. Mm-hmm. Just go around Disney park and take some pictures for us and they don't really put any parameters around that so i'm curious what you think of that well uh, it's what a question (laughs) sorry i mean it's it's a great question and it's something i've been actually thinking a lot about uh the rules are different now Mm -hmm. and let me tell you something these millennials have a very sophisticated sense of media and their presence in media so um, one of the things I love about these new YouTube stars or Instagram stars is that they know what it takes to build and maintain an audience. And it's not necessarily what the brands want. They know they have got to be genuine. Mm-hmm. And, and the brands may not like that. And I, I was talking to a young YouTube star at South by Southwest. She's got like 6 million followers. And she uh, has a contract with a big uh, clothing company and she's actually designing clothes for them. And 
she said, I don't wear their clothes all the time. Why mm. would I? If I did that, my fans would know something's not right. I mm-hmm. can't ever do that. Mm-hmm. And so you have to really plant a stake in the ground and say, do I believe in this person? Mm-hmm. Do I believe in their content? And you can't try to control it. You've got to enable them and give them fun, meaningful, immersive experiences that are going to want them to 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 ignite your content, that are going to just say, I can't wait to ignite this content. So it's not like these people are not walking advertisements. Uh, you have got to really create uh, – you can't buy their influence. You have to earn their advocacy. And it's, a, it, you know, that is a big lesson that I think brands are going to have to learn. So it's, it's a little different than when I was a teenager working at a retail store and they told me that I had to wear their clothes. <laughs> it's a lot different. <laughs> At least a lot different. At least if you have 6 million followers, it's definitely different. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, we've been talking about sort of the big corporations and how they, you know, they're, they're able to cut through the noise a little better, or at least they have the resources. So how do, how does this whole content shop, content ignition, how do these ideas apply to small business? You know, those mom and pop shops on the corner who probably can't even afford to, uh, you know, get the YouTube stars and endorse endorse her, excuse me. I think that's one of the things that I'm so proud about for the book, the for the content code, because in this book, I lay out, here are the st- six strategies. Here are the six ways that you can ignite your content. And in my long period of obsession with this topic, <laughs> I, I, I really tried to pr- provide something that is completely thorough and completely accurate. And here's the good news. Of these six strategies, only one really takes money. And uh, that would be, you know, advertising, promotion, SEO, and distribution. So uh, there are five other strategies that you can employ. And these are really accessible to anyone, to it, it, whether you're an individual blogger or a multinational company. You can, everyone can find something to take away from the book and something that they can learn to implement almost uh, immediately. And it's not linear. It's not like step one, step two, step three. You can read the book and say, you know what? This idea around building shareability into my content, that seems like something I can do. And, you know, that might be step three. You could take a little from step four and build your own kind of plan. So I think I start out the book by saying this is a book about hope. Because it does seem intimidating, this, this, this wall of noise, this malignant <laughs> growth of content, <laughs> big brands spending all this money and these, on these influencers will, that have bodyguards that we're never going to need. <laughs> uh, but there is, there, there is a way to go forward. There is a way that every business can, can, can learn to move their content. And if you start thinking this way, you can create a competitive advantage. I love it. And I love that message. You know, I'm a small business guy. That's sort of where my heart and head is. So I really, I appreciate that you have the principles that can work for them too. Now, at the end of every interview, first of all, thank you so much for this. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's been awesome. But at the end of every interview, we ask one question and it's where can folks find you on the internet? But I'm scared to ask you because you are <laughs> everywhere, Mark. <laughs> you are simply everywhere. But where can folks find you on the internet? 
<laughs> ubiquity is what I aim for. <laughs> achieved goal achieved. The, 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 you the really um, the, there's there's one place. It's businessesgrow.com. I I couldn't call my website anything with Schaefer because no one can spell that. Uh, but uh, at businesses grow. You can find my books, my blog, my podcast, and lots of cool free resources to help you with your business. Well, it's been fantastic speaking with you and and just knowing you throughout the years and and following your work and being part of your community. So this is fun to kind of come full circle and have you on our podcast. So thank you so much, Mark. Awesome. Thanks to you both. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye. It's time for Customer Hero, Customer Zero. All right, Jeannie, let me ask you, have you ever used a Keurig? It is 2015, and I do love coffee. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a yes, huh? <laughs> All right, well, so Keurig came out with a 2.0, and it was sort of a revelation. They got a lot of good press about it because it combined the K-cups with the ability to do a pot of coffee. Uh, the good press only lasted so long because there was a problem with it. They attempted to mandate loyalty. Uh. And what they did, I know you love that, right? <laughs> what they did was they made it so the machine only worked with their K-cups. Uh. <laughs> That's your favorite. <laughs> well, okay. I was really excited when I saw the 2.0 in a store. And then I looked at the description. And it's not really a pot of coffee that you can make with like a filter in your coffee. You have to still use their big, stupid cup <laughs> for the pot of coffee. And so that's why I didn't purchase that. But your point is it goes one step beyond that. Right. And, you know, it's funny. So what, the way the mechanism worked is there is a infrared or some kind of reader and there's a thing on the foil cap that it reads. So that's how it knows it's a Keurig uh, cup. Mm -hmm. Now, immediately, I mean, within, I don't know, days of this happening, YouTube videos were going viral everywhere showing you how to hack it and like tape a little, just buy one, tape it to the thing and fake out the reader and use whatever K-cups you want. Because there are different brands, and they were basically saying you can only use our brand and our fancy schmancy robot reader will <laughs> prevent you from, you know, using the ones that you prefer or using the reusable ones. <clears throat> right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because the second thing is the environment. Oh, and, my God. You know, even the creator of the K-cups came out recently and said he sort of regrets the mm -hmm. decision. And it's tough because they are so convenient. You know, this super is, convenient. This is part of our entire world now is this mm -hmm. convenience and its cost. So I need to give a shout out to my husband right now because this shows you how I'm a total diva. Um, but he stopped drinking coffee a few years ago. And I have a Keurig machine that I keep in my office. But uh, in the morning, instead of using that, he still makes half a pot of coffee because he's like, well, we're going to you're going to drink it. <laughs> like there's no doubt about that. So instead of the environmental impact, he does that so that I can have my coffee and everybody's happier when mom has her coffee in the morning. <laughs> I'm guessing that is not a completely altruistic action on his part. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. But I think the environment thing, like it does bother me and it does bother me that, you know, now they're coming out and they're saying, not only are you forced to use this plastic that you may not be thrilled about using, but you're forced to use our version of it. And that just seems redonkulous to me. <laughs> Doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to create something that has so much of the market share, then why force people 
to possibly even purchase coffee they don't want to purchase. Like maybe there's a flavor that they really love that isn't in a K-cup. So they use a reusable or they, they have a local place or whatever. Give them that freedom. The, the freedom of having one cup of coffee at a time freshly brewed, that's what you're providing with the machine. Not great tasting coffee from you all the time. That's my opinion. Well, it's also being happy with what you've already got. I mean, they created this machine and everybody accepted it as the standard with the exception of Starbucks who tried to make their own cup, mm-hmm. which, and they're the, about the only one who could do that at this point. Right. Because, you know, everybody accepts the Keurig standard and the sizing and all of that. They should be happy enough with that. I, I mean, know. they can, they can do very well with that. And this, they got a lot of backlash for this. Mm-hmm. So to be clear, cause I'm not sure we said it at the beginning. This is a customer zero. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think they need to work on this and figure out what are they really offering. And in my opinion, what they're offering is the experience of the convenience of I'm going to get a cup of coffee out the door in my commuter cup and, you know, be on my merry way instead of making a whole pot or in an office. You can choose flavors. I mean, there are lots of advantages to this. If if I buy a box that's not from Keurig or however you say it, (laughs) (laughs) uh, then they should still know that we're still supporting the machine. We're still going to buy another machine once that one inevitably breaks down. So there you go. There we go. All (laughs) right. So that is customer hero, customer zero. Thanks for listening to episode 23 of Crack the Customer Code. I'm Jeannie Walters, and you can find out more about me at 360connects.com. And I'm Adam Taporek. My website is customersthatstick.com. Find more episodes in all the show notes at crackthecustomercode.com. And please, this is the part where we ask you to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so you'll never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, we'd love your comments in a review, a few stars, a few words about what you want to know more about, who you would like as a guest, or what we could do differently. We will take those too. That helps us a lot. And please tell someone you know, we love word of mouth. Until next time, take care of yourself. And take care of your customers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.